Social media is, uh, is unique for so many reasons. A lot of them strange, but uh, one of the reasons it's unique is, is we feel the need as, as total strangers to introduce ourselves to people with these bios that Twitter, or I know it's X now, but whatever, it's still Twitter, or Instagram, or Facebook, or whatever, they, they, they ask you for this bio, and you're supposed to put some words in there to help people understand and, and meet who you are. And, uh, and there's some interesting ones that I found, like this one from Crazy Adventures. I'm not convinced this isn't my wife, because the bio was this, married to the luckiest man alive, we have 11 billion kids. We have five, close to 11 billion. Sometimes it feels that way. She says, I write, I wife, I mom, I run. Uh, that, that's what she wanted everybody to know about her. She's married, her husband's lucky. Um, she has a lot of kids, and she likes to write and run and wife, whatever that means. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this person said, I'm not actually funny. I'm just really mean, and people think I'm joking. <laughs> uh, um, Tom Hanks, uh, actor, said, I'm that actor in some of the movies you liked and some of you didn't. It's interesting, right? It's this snapshot of our life in 240 characters or whatever it may be. Here's who we are. Some of you have them and, and you've updated them from time to time. This may be a little bit sacrilegious, but I wonder what Jesus' Twitter profile would read. Would it read, son of God, eternal creator of everything, including you who are reading this profile right now? I don't know, maybe it would read what we read in John chapter 1, because I think when we come to John chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, that we're going to read about today, specifically verses 16 through 18, I think this is some of the most important truth that we could ever come to know about Jesus, is what John has to say to us in these three verses. Pick up with me in John chapter 1. We're going to read verse 15, which is a parenthetical statement. It's a transitory statement that goes from verse 14 to then where John is going in the rest of his introduction here. But we pick up in verse 15, and it says, open parentheses there in your Bibles, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So our uh, author, John the Evangelist or John the Apostle is clarifying, this is the one John the Baptist was talking about. The word become flesh from John 1.14 that we looked at together last week. This is the one that John the Baptist was referencing. So here John the Evangelist is letting us know without any shadow of a doubt that he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, this is the one. He's the one. Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again, I think this passage, these three verses, contain some of the most important truth about Christ that you and I could ever hope to know some of the doctrine and the theology, we've, we've covered that when we started with the word was in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. We've checked some of the doctrinal boxes, but, but now we get to what does this mean for you and me? Why does this matter for us? And it's what he has to say here in verses 16 through 18 specifically. He begins by talking about the fullness from his fullness. Well, whose fullness? The fullness of the word. Back in John 1.14, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. From that fullness, we have all received. Colossians 1.19 tells us that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And it's from this fullness that we have received specifically, he says, grace upon grace. And I tell you what, the Irish preachers 
pronounce that in ways that just make you, everybody else fails in light of that. If you've ever heard Philip DeCourcy or um, who's up in Ohio, Alistair Begg, if you've ever heard them say grace upon grace, I'm gonna, not even going to try, but that's your homework. Go find a sermon that they preached on this passage and listen to them pronounce grace upon grace. It's, it's amazing. It's better than the, than the Greek, I'm, I'm sure even. But we've all received grace upon grace. What does that mean? What is grace to begin with? Maybe that's a good place to start. We, last week just kind of glazed over it, not glazed over it, but we passed over it towards the end of that verse that he's full of grace and truth. What is grace? Well, it comes from a Greek word that means kindness, favor, gift. We explain it to our kids this way. Grace is getting from God what you don't deserve. It's often paired with its companion word, which is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But the grace is the positive side. It's the favor. It's the gift. It's the kindness of God. And here, John is saying that from the fullness of Christ, we have all received kindness upon kindness. That word upon there in the ESV is a Greek word that can also mean in place of or instead of. And that's probably the better reference or the better understanding of it here. It's grace in place of grace. In fact, if you've got an NIV, that's what it reads. Grace in place of grace already given. John's just emphasizing that this is an inexhaustible supply of this kindness that we have in Jesus. The word become flesh. Grace has been the consistent theme of God's story from the very beginning. You've got Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, you've got the, the tragic fall of mankind. You've got Eve reaching out and taking from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating of it and giving some to Adam who was with her, and he ate as well. And then the, the eyes of the two were opened, and they were aware that they were naked, and they sewed the fig leaves together, and shame came, and guilt came, and condemnation came. And then God came walking in the garden saying, where are you? And they said, we hid from you. And he said, well, who told you that you were unclothed? And he draws out this confession from them. We, we've sinned. But do you know how quickly grace comes? Nine verses after the fall, we find grace. In what's called the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first gospel. It's when God tells the serpent, you know what? You're going to strike the heel of the offspring of the woman who is Jesus. But though you strike his heel, he's going to crush your head. And so right there, nine verses after the fall, grace is on the scene. God's already telling us what he's going to do about our sin problem. He's going to conquer the greatest enemy, which is Satan. And in so doing, that's going to take place at the cross. And at the cross is where our ultimate problem of sin is dealt with, where our sins are paid in full, as we just sang. And we receive the full forgiveness of God. So nine verses. But what else is the kindness and grace of God? How about when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush? Because of why? The cries of his people in Egypt for deliverance under their slavery to Pharaoh. The grace of God shows up with Moses. And then not only that, but the grace of God shows up by delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. Freeing them through the exodus. The grace of God shows up then when he provides judges for them. And delivers them from their own rebellion and their own sinfulness. The grace of God appears again when he provides kings for them. Even though they come forward and they say, we want to be like the other nations, so give us a king. He warns them and says, this is what's going to happen. And yet still he provides a king. And, and not all the kings were wicked. He provided for them King David, the prototype of the ultimate Davidic king that would come in the future, Jesus himself. He gave them Solomon. 
And so David, Solomon, and others were kings that God gave his people as an act of grace. He gave them prophets even during the reigns of the evil kings. The prophets were there to warn the people as an act of the grace of God to say, what you are doing is not right. It was God's grace when he sent the people into exile because they would not listen to the prophets to still preserve a remnant. When you think of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and you think of those like them who were faithful to God even through exile, it was the grace of God to restore his people to their homeland. It was the grace of God to provide another temple for them. It was the grace of God after 400 years of silence to send John the Baptist who was saying, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it was the grace of God that brought Jesus. And so grace is not something that's all of a sudden introduced in the New Testament as some foreign concept that hasn't been a part of who God is from the very beginning. God has always been a God of grace. He's immutable, which means he's unchangeable. He is grace. And this leads us all the way up to here, the incarnation, which we experienced and looked at in depth last week. But when we think about the incarnation, and then it didn't stop there. Go on from there and think about your own life and all of the kindnesses that you have experienced in your life. And we begin to understand a little bit of what John meant when he said, from his fullness, we have all received grace, kindness, in place of kindness. Grace upon grace. If you've ever taken your kids to a splash park or a water park, you've probably seen this element of it, the, the gigantic bucket. I remember the first time I went and saw one of these did not know what was coming, and then it just dumps out, and all the kids go running, and, and the water just washes over them. It just overflows and floods over the top of them. What happens to that bucket? It gets filled right back up to do it again, and to do it again, and to do it again. Grace upon grace. The flood, the fullness of grace from Jesus. And how do we get this from Christ? Well, we get this from Christ because Jesus is God. We've covered that. The word was God. And God is grace. And his interaction, as we've talked about, was, has been marked since the beginning of, of time by this inexhaustible grace. And we first realize it through trusting him for salvation, but then it flows from that point on in the rest of our lives. Our first point this morning is this. Let's rejoice in that grace. Rejoice in the inexhaustible grace of Jesus. The inexhaustible grace of Jesus whether it's the bucket or you think about the waves on the seashore just coming in wave after wave after wave after wave without end. That's God's grace in our lives through Christ, this rhythmic pulsing of kindness. But what does this grace mean for you and me today? Take your Bibles, if you would, and flip on over to Ephesians. Flip on over to Ephesians. You're going to go right in your Bibles. You're going to go past uh, Acts, you're going to go past First and Second Corinthians, past Romans, and then you're going to get it. Well, Romans, then First and Second Corinthians. Then you're going to get into Galatians. Ephesians is after that. Ephesians chapter one. The Apostle Paul describes some of what grace does for us, why it should cause us to rejoice. He begins in verse three. He said, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places." even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He goes on to talk about our inheritance, our sealing with the promised Holy Spirit. And what does he trace all of that back to? The riches of his glorious grace with which he has lavished upon us. Grace, grace upon grace. What does this do? There's three areas that I want you to think about why it's worth rejoicing in this inexhaustible grace. What grace has done in your life. The first thing is it's dealt with your sin. The grace of Jesus has dealt with your sin. Ephesians 2, if you're still there, if you just look across the page, well, if we were to read the whole thing, which we don't have time, but you can start in verse 1 through 4, he gives us the, the bad news, or 1 through 3, he gives us the bad news. And then 4 through, through 9, he gives us a lot of the good news. But look at verse 8 and 9, you probably know these verses. For by what? By grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from our sins. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's the grace of God. It's the kindness of God. So God's kindness, God's grace has dealt with our sin. We read about this as well in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. It said, we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, why did he have to taste death for us? Because of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, that the wages of sin is what? Death. And by the grace of God, Jesus has tasted death for everyone. He's dealt with that sin. The grace of God has dealt with our sin. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 14 Right after Paul had called himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, he, received, he says, I received the grace of our Lord, which overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying God redeemed him, again, from being a blasphemer, a persecutor, from his ignorance, his insolence, being an opponent of God. See, grace deals with our, our sin. But it doesn't stop there. Today, grace is dealing with us, and the reason we should rejoice is because it's dealing with us to sanctify us. Sanctification is a big word that has to do with our holiness, our becoming more like Jesus, more like God, more godly in our interaction. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through, really down through 14, but specifically verse 12. Verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared. And then it says this, the grace of God, verse 12, picking it up here, that same grace that saved us is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So there you see that the grace of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, is not only dealing with our sin, but it's now training us in godliness. It's producing sanctification in us. From his fullness, we have received this grace in place of grace. 1 Peter 4.10, another element of our sanctification, I believe, is our, our service in the, the body of Christ. Playing a, a, the part that, that God has given us to play. And in 1 Peter 4.10, it says, Each one of us has received a gift. Use it, therefore, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So his grace is being worked out within the body of the church as well in the here and now. 
So we rejoice because it's overcome our sin. We rejoice because it's helping us in our sanctification. Then finally, we rejoice ultimately because it's going to result in our final salvation. You say, well, uh, Pastor PJ, I'm already saved. Yes, you are, but you're not, you haven't fully realized that yet. And it's just as much an act of God's grace to deliver you into that final realization of that salvation as it is anything else. God didn't get you started on the way to salvation with grace. He's doing it all through grace. And that's what I want us to see here. 1 Peter 1.13 speaks of this. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a future grace that's going to be ours in Christ. And we know it's going to come. Why? Because we've received from his fullness grace in place of grace. Grace upon grace. God's always been a God of grace. Even in the Old Testament, the giving of the law. I don't know if we've ever thought of that this way, but the, the giving of the law was an act of grace from God because it's through the law that we came to understand our need for salvation. Romans 5, 20 through 21 says this, the law came to increase the trespass or the sins, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of the law was replaced, though, as John tells us in verse 17. If you'll look down at our text, John 1, 17, the grace of the law was replaced with a greater grace, and that is the grace that is ours in Christ. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, the Old Testament law given through Moses was an act of grace on God's part. Moses, though, was just a man like you and me, just a human being, just created. And the law was mediated through Moses, and he was an imperfect mediator between man and God because he himself needed his sin to be dealt with. He himself had sin that, that needed to be reconciled, that needed to be atoned for. But now we've got a greater mediator, and that's the, the person, Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, and in Christ, we find this truth, the good news of the gospel, that we can be saved from our own efforts by God's unassailable grace. That it's not about us doing more or trying harder, but it's about finding that Christ has done everything that we need. The law was an act of grace, but it was a transitional grace because it was meant to point us to Jesus. Galatians 3 speaks of that. In Galatians 3.19, it says this, Why then was the law given? Well, it was added because of transgressions, that is sin, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, that, that's Moses. So the law was there for a purpose, because of sin, until the offspring should come. Who's the offspring? Jesus. So the law was there as a transition to get us to Jesus. In fact, he goes on more specifically, he says in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Read law, the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He says in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
So here's what I want us to understand. When he says the law was given by Moses, he's not contrasting the law and the grace of Jesus. He's saying grace in place of grace, what does that look like? Well, the grace of the law has now been replaced by a greater grace, which is the grace of Jesus. The grace of the law was given so that you would get to Jesus. The grace of the law was given so that you would see your need for Jesus. But it's all grace. The law had that purpose, but it was never to justify it was always to point us to our need for justification, our need for Christ. Our second point this morning is this. Get from the law to Jesus. Get from the law to Jesus. I've always been fascinated by castles. There's one in Prosper. I don't know why. But there's one in Prosper over off of Frontier on the other side of Preston from, uh, from the high school there. If you keep going on Frontier, off on the right... Um, there, clearly there's no HOA over there, right? Because there's these gargantuan houses that all look radically different from each other. But there's a castle over there. Can you imagine going to your HOA and saying, um, we'd like to do some demo work on our house. We're going to build a castle instead. Moat, turrets, archer windows, drawbridge. We want it all. We're going to do that. My HOA won't let me put a trampoline in the backyard without clearing it with them. There's no way they're going to let me put a castle up. Not that that's in the plans either, um, but castles are, are pretty amazing when you see them, how strong they are, how foreboding they can be. Castles were meant to do what, though? They, they were built to protect. They were built to be a place of refuge. For the person who wishes to have a relationship with God, there's really two castles that you might be drawn to. The first castle, it looks like a castle from the outside. It's got the turrets, it's got the archer windows, it's got the moat, it's got the drawbridge. But the problem is when you enter this castle, all of a sudden you realize that it's really nothing more than just a facade. There's no walls, there's nothing there to protect you. And you come to quickly realize, if I stay here, I stand no chance against the attacks of the enemy. This first castle is the law. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Meaning, the law won't justify me. The law will just show me how far short I fall. Seeking shelter in your righteousness or your obedience or your morality or your values is like taking refuge in a castle without walls or a roof. In fact, consider Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 21, in light of this idea of trying to do enough for God to accept us. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name? And, and we did many mighty works in your name. Notice the appeal here is to works, and impressive works at that. I haven't cast out any demons. Hopefully that gives you some comfort out there. I haven't done miracles. And so their works resume blows mine out of the water. But notice Jesus' response. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
What does that tell us, church? That tells us that to know Jesus isn't about what you're doing. It's not about conforming. It's not about being good enough. In fact, truly knowing Jesus begins with you saying, I'm not good enough. And I never will be good enough. Knowledge of Christ is is a relationship that is founded on not law, but grace. But the law is grace because it points us to that need. It points us to the fact that we need Christ. Romans 3.28 says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The faith is counted as righteousness to the one who believes in him. Galatians 2, 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, why was the law given then? It was given to point us to Jesus. It was given so that we would know, man, I need Jesus. And listen, I'm not antinomian, meaning I'm not against godliness and sanctification and lordship. That's a part of what it looks like to live out your Christian life, not to enter your Christian life. To enter a relationship with Jesus is not about any obedience aside from putting your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what initiates your relationship with Christ. And so if you're still leaning on the law, then we need to get from the law to Jesus. Because attempting to have a relationship with God through being good enough, again, is like taking shelter in that castle without walls or a roof. But the other castle, that castle is strong. That castle has everything that you need. That castle will provide the shelter that you need and it will stand up to any attack and defend off any threat. And that castle is Jesus. Jesus. The writer of Hebrews talks about the law and about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, the second half, verse one, the first half says this, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. But again, remember the shadow points to the reality. The shadow of the law points to the reality of Jesus. It can never, meaning the law, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the writer is indicting the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's writing to a group of potential Christians that are wanting to go back, perhaps, to the Old Testament law. And he's saying, why do you want to go back to the law? The law was a shadow of what's now here. And the law, through those sacrifices that were offered by the priests every single day, those couldn't take away sin. They were a shadow of the greater reality of the one who ultimately came to take away sin. And that's where he goes next in his argument. He says this in verse 14. He says, by a single offering, contrast to the repeated offerings of the priests, now by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the stronger castle. He's the one that is our refuge. The law is meant to drive us to Jesus. The law was a grace of God to point us to the greater grace that is now here. That's John's argument. Do you hear it building here? The law came through Moses. No man was able to be justified by that law. But now something greater is here, and that is Jesus. 
And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon endless grace. Here's what that means for you. If you're still at the law, you're still trying to live a good enough life. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I've always gone to church and I'm a good person. That'll be good enough. It's not going to be good enough. Or maybe your thought is, well, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a nice guy. So surely God's not going to turn me away. I'm, I'm a nice guy. Everybody thinks I'm a nice person. You can't be nice enough. Or maybe you think, well, uh, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. No, because a singular bad deed, a singular sin against an infinitely holy God creates an infinite chasm between you and that God. Or maybe you think, well, you know, I, I go to church. In fact, I've been to church every single Sunday since I was born. I was born on a Friday. I was in church on a Sunday. I'm good. I've been to church. Church, you know, church is not to save you. Church is a place where saved people gather to worship Jesus for saving us. But being here in this room can't save you. Or maybe you think, you know what? I was baptized when I was a kid, so I'm good to go. Baptism doesn't save you. Let me go so far as to even say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was little. Look, if your trust is in anything other than the person of Jesus, then you're not there. You're still in the law. If you're trusting your act or someone else's act on your behalf, then you're not in the castle of Christ. You're stuck in the castle of law. John wants you to know that there's someone far more worthy of your trust than yourself. And that's Jesus. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus. It's in Jesus that we've received grace upon grace. And this morning, if you will repent from your sin, which means to turn from your sin, recognize that sin, and put your trust fully in Jesus, not in an act, not in a, a, a being here in this place, but in the person of Jesus, right? The apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed in, not what I believe. I know whom I have believed in. So if you will trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be transferred from the, the, the shadow of the, the facade of the castle that is law into the fortress that is the castle of grace in Jesus. And so there's good news to be offered to you this morning. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Well, I hope you've picked up so far on the fact that the theme of grace is not a new theme in the Bible. It's part of God's story that he's been telling from the very beginning. In fact, verse 14 tells us even that the, the crescendo of grace that we love about Jesus is really Jesus showing us the heart of the Father. He said, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Then we pick up here in, in verse 16, sorry, verse 18, and he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. What does that mean? What does it mean that the, the only God who's at the Father's side? Well, that should remind us of the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was what? With God. And here John says, the only God who's at the Father's side. This is Jesus, okay? He has made him known. 
made him known. Well, why did he need to make him known? Well, because of the beginning of verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Think about that. Moses got to see the backside of his glory, but that was it. Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and others in the Old Testament, they all were privileged to behold a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. But no one has ever seen God the Father. Why? Well, John 4, verse 24 is going to tell us that God is spirit. God is spirit. Colossians 1.15 calls him the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.7 also calls him the invisible God. And so for us to know the Father, we had to have the Son. Because the Son came to make him known. To make him known. It's from the same word in the Greek that gives us our English word exegete. That's what I'm doing with the the Bible, hopefully, Lord willing. If not, then you can leave, right? Because that's my job. Exegeting the Bible. That means to dig in, to unpack it, and to show its contents, to explain it, right? Jesus exegetes the Father. So again, the story of grace was not saved for the incarnation. The story of grace has been everything because God is a God of grace. The fact that Jesus is here to show us the Father means that when we see Jesus, we are seeing the Father. This is immeasurable grace, finally, this morning. That that God would take on flesh in order that we might receive grace upon grace, that we might know the heart of the Father in this way. Because without the incarnation, we really don't fully know the Father. If all we had is the Old Testament, we get glimpses of grace, but not the fullness of grace that we see in Jesus. And so the incarnation was an act of God's immeasurable grace so that we would be able to see the heart of the Father and respond appropriately. And that's our final point this morning. Respond to the immeasurable grace of God. Respond to the immeasurable grace of God. When God chose to provide the fullest expression of himself, no one else could ever say that they have explained God, they've exegeted God. Moses didn't exegete God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they didn't exegete God. John the Baptist didn't exegete God. Only Jesus has exegeted God. When God chose to provide the fullest expression of himself to us, he did so through immeasurable grace by sending his son to make him known. I want you to think for a minute. God the Father. What comes to mind when you think about God in that terms, those terms? When you think about the Father, the Heavenly Father, when you think about the, the God the Father, that member of the Godhead, the Trinity, what thoughts come to mind? What feelings come to mind? Is he distant? Is he unfamiliar? Perhaps he's angry, powerful, stern, disappointed. How do you conceive of God personally in your life? Now I want you to do the same thing with the word Jesus. What thoughts come to mind when you think about Jesus? Is he gentle, patient, kind, compassionate, loving, 
gracious, the loving shepherd with his sheep? What thoughts come to your mind when you think about Jesus? Now I want you to look at John 1.18 again. No one has ever seen God, the only God. This one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let me connect these points. If you want to know what the Father's like, look at the Son. All those thoughts that you had about Jesus, you can take all of those thoughts and put them on the Father. He's not some angry, disappointed, stern, disapproving figurehead that's up there looking at you going, what a, what a disappointment. What a failure you are. When you think about Jesus and you think that he is patient and compassionate and loving and he felt compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd, you are thinking about the heart not only of the son but also of the father. The one who loved you enough, John 3, 16, to give his son so that if you would believe in him, you would not perish but have eternal life. The son came to show us the father in an immeasurable act of grace. And so the question this morning is, what are you doing with this grace? How are you responding to this grace this morning? Christian, let me talk to you for a minute. Does it move you to gratitude? We talked about this some last week, but it's worth mentioning again. If, if all of this kind of bores you or doesn't really move the needle for you, okay, yes, God, grace after grace, and I know he's, he's a gracious God. Let me ask you this question. How can you work this week to acquire more of a taste for gratitude when it comes to this grace of God. I mentioned it last week, the first time you taste coffee, you don't like it. But most of us are willing to work to acquire the taste. Are you willing to work to acquire the taste of gratitude, of thanksgiving to God for what he's done, for this immeasurable grace that we have in Christ? What should this gratitude look like? Three things I want to suggest to you. Number one is just devotion. To devote your life fully to the Father. Fully to God. God, I want to live for you in every, every facet of my life. I want it to be for you. Not to earn anything, but in response to this grace that you've given me. Devotion. With devotion, secondly, is going to come increased affection. Increased affection. Fill your life up with the things that increase your affection for Jesus, that cause you to love him more. That could be good worship to good coffee. Whatever causes you to go, thank you, God, for this gift in my life. Maybe it's your family this week. Maybe it's the job that you have. Allow those things to stir your affection for Christ. Third, growth in godliness. And this is going to be a natural overflow of the first two. But your growth in godliness that we are, can show our gratitude for this immeasurable grace of God through looking and seeking and striving to put off sin in our lives and to grow in Christ-likeness, to see more of the fruit of the Spirit and less of the fruit of the flesh in our lives. If you're here this morning and you would say, well, I'm not a Christian, can I talk to you for a second? Do you want this grace? Do you want to know God? Do you want to be freed from the travails of searching for satisfaction from the trivial things that this world offers you? 
whatever it is you're living for right now, saying this is going to be my hope, this is going to be what, what makes me truly happy, it won't. Because my guess is you haven't found that yet. Chasing the next thing won't work either. How do I know that? Because no one's written the book that said, here it is, I found it. You want it? Here it is. Actually, I take that back. Somebody did. Do you want peace? Do you want security? When you think about your future, when you think about the fact that you are a car ride away from an appointment with God in eternity, do you want security to know where you're going to be? Jesus came to show you the Father so that you can have all of those things in him. All of those things in him. Does that mean all your problems are going to go away right away immediately? No. But this small section of your eternal existence will all of a sudden begin to take on a, a different perspective when you think that you're going to get to go and spend eternity with him forever and ever, free from sin, with Jesus, in the fullness of his presence, in the fullness of his glory, you'll get to go and be with him. It does change things here. How can you respond to him if that's you? I talked about it already, but the first is recon recognition of your, your sinfulness, that you need Christ, that you need forgiveness. And then the decision to repent from your sin, to say, I'm, I'm done living for myself, I'm done pursuing satisfaction in all these other areas, and now I'm going to turn and I'm going to live my life fully for Christ. And then it's expressing your trust that he died on the cross for your sins, meaning all of your sinfulness was taken on him. And he gave you in exchange his righteousness so that you can be forgiven this morning. This morning. You can leave with your eternity transformed this morning if you will do that. Jesus came to explain the Father and explained him ultimately by showing us grace upon endless grace. So what would Jesus' social media bio say? I don't know. Thankfully, we probably won't have social media in eternal life. I hope not. I don't know. Maybe if Elon gets saved, then who knows? Who knows, right? I don't know. I got to imagine, though, a pretty good bio for Jesus might be something like, it's all grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. Thank you for the reality that it's not about what we do, but about what Christ has done that it is finished. And because of that, Lord, the reality that we get to enjoy is the forgiveness, is the acceptance, is the welcome, is the adoption as sons and daughters. No more debt we owe. Lord, what a glorious, wonderful truth that is. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning that have been trying that have been seeking for acceptance from you or seeking acceptance from the world or seeking satisfaction in this world, I pray that this morning you would lead them to the end of that pursuit and that they would realize that the end of that pursuit is Jesus standing there at the finish line saying, it's not about you, it's about what I have done for you and receive the gift, receive the kindness, receive the grace from me of full forgiveness. Unmerited righteousness, ours in Christ Jesus. 
through faith. God, thank you so much for the story of grace that you've been telling from the very beginning, that you're still telling now, and that you will ultimately culminate when we go to be with you. Help us to be faithful until then. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.